This mitzvah podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas Dina Bat Esther as we commemorate her fifth yard site. May her soul be elevated in heaven and may she always experience lots of nachas from her children and grandchildren. We're up to mitzvah number 111. This is going to be the last mitzvah whose source is in the book of Exodus. We're going through the mitzvahs in the order in which they appear in the Torah. There are only three mitzvahs in the book of Genesis. There are 111 mitzvahs in the book of Exodus. So the final mitzvah, if we were counting just the numbers, the final mitzvah in the book of Exodus would be mitzvah number 114. But it just happens to be that mitzvah number 112 and 113 and 114, we already covered. So mitzvah number 111 is going to be the last one that we're going to cover in the book of Exodus. And then we will proceed, please God, to the book of Leviticus. 112, we did it. It's Shemitah. 113 is milk and meat. We covered that as well. And 114 is capital crime on Shabbos, which we all previously covered. So this is the last one we're going to cover in the book of Exodus. And this is a very interesting one. And this is the mitzvah of idolatrous wine. There are, of course, many laws related to idolatry. And this is a particularly interesting one because it relates not to the idolatry itself, but to the paraphernalia of idolatry. If there was wine or really any food that was used for an idolatrous practice, if an idol worshiper took wine and poured it as a libation for their idol, and then repackage the wine and wants to give it to us, we are prohibited to consume it, not just wine, but any food, and really we'll see anything at all that was used for an idolatrous practice is prohibited for us. Now, this mitzvah is particularly interesting because the rabbis extended this law and added stringency upon stringency to extend the boundaries of this law, as the rabbis, of course, do when they make a decree, when they make an edict, they can take the existing law, the Torah law, and then make all sorts of additional stringencies upon it. And that's where this mitzvah gets even more interesting. So mitzvah number 111 is that anything that is used for idolatry is forbidden to consume. We cannot eat. We cannot drink anything that was used as an offering for idolatry. And of course, the reason for this is obvious. We believe in God and not in the foreign gods, not in the, in the idols. And therefore, we're going to distance ourselves, not just from the idols themselves, bowing down to the idols, accepting foreign deities, doing actual service and offerings to the idols. Of course, that's prohibited, but even things that are tangentially associated with the idol and the idolatrous practices, we distance ourselves from in order to make the whole notion of idolatry, to make it so distant and so foreign to us, anything that's remotely related to idolatry for us is totally taboo. Someone asked me recently, are we allowed to celebrate Halloween? got this question recently. And the truth is, if you just research it, it's kind of an odd, an odd holiday. 
that has all sorts of uh, pagan roots. Somehow it got transposed in America to candy and, and uh, costumes, but really it comes from idolatry. And even though we can't necessarily say it's a violation you know, to get dressed up and to go trick-or-treating, it's a violation of a specific law per se, but I think it's certainly within the realm of this idea of this mitzvah, we have enough mitzvahs of our own, we have enough customs and culture and society of our own, we don't need to look elsewhere. Of course, this is slightly a different mitzvah, you know, actual items used for idolatry, food in our case, that we don't consume, but related to this idea is that, you know, we we have such a rich culture, we have such a rich religion, we shouldn't need to look elsewhere. And I think it might be symbolic of a failure of our communities if we don't give the participants or the constituents in our communities enough of a, a rich spiritual and communal life. It's a, I think, symbolic of that, you know, if they have to look elsewhere for things, uh, for things to celebrate, you know, kids to get dressed up and the like. Now, when we talk about the laws of this mitzvah, we will see that it is a series of stringencies upon stringencies. So, for example, any food that was used for an idolatrous practice is prohibited, including foods that are generally considered to be insignificant. So, for example, water. Water is always viewed as being very insignificant. It's not wine. It's not so important. Salt. Salt doesn't have any nutritional value. It's not a food. It's not something that you would say that this is your, you're giving something to honor the idol with water or with salt. But nevertheless, if it was used in any capacity, if it was placed before the idol, even if we don't necessarily think that it was used to bestow honor upon the idol, nevertheless, it is included. Now, as we mentioned, the rabbis extended the boundaries of this law and added rabbinic edicts and decrees and many of them, as we shall see. And of course, the theory is, or the philosophy, the reason, the rationale, the justification is that we have to create this this sharp differentiation between us and what we believe and how we live our lives and the idolaters and idolatry in general. And therefore, they extended this law. And they said that not only wine that was actually used for a libation. Not only that's prohibited. What about if you have just, it's just wine and you don't know, there's no evidence, there's no testimony, there's no witnesses, there's no video, there's no account of this wine being used for idolatry. It's just ordinary wine. That too, the rabbis extended this prohibition. Any wine that comes from a non-Jew even if we have no reason to believe that the non-Jew used it for any sort of idolatry, nevertheless, it is prohibited. Even a single drop, even a single drop of wine. If the single drop of wine would drop into our barrel of wine, the entire barrel would be banned. That's how far they extended it. With other things, non-wine, unless we know for sure, you buy, you buy bread, you buy, I don't know, 
chicken or whatever, supposing, supposing you know that it was kosher. You buy other food items from a Gentile, unless you know it was used for idolatry, well, then it's okay. Provided that you know it's kosher, of course. But with respect to wine, we don't buy wine from the Gentile. Now, the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we are using to navigate through the mitzvahs, he talks a lot about the various extensions of this mitzvah. And he speaks about wine specifically and why wine is so especially stringent. He tells us that the idolaters, the focal point of their service to their idols, the thing that brought them the most joy in their worshiping was the wine. And therefore, the rabbis added all these decrees specifically with wine. And it goes even further. Suppose you have your own wine. It's your wine. It's kosher wine. It's Jewish wine. It's not owned by the Gentile. You have absolutely no evidence that it was used. and it was, It's yours. It wasn't used by anyone else. But the non-Jew, the Gentile, touches it. Come along, the rabbis, and they extend the stringency to say, even if the Jewish wine was touched by the Gentile, it's now prohibited. Not only is it prohibited to be consumed, it's prohibited even to benefit. So the original law stated that you cannot drink the wine of the idolatrous, the idolatrous wine. This extension says, it's your wine, and it was only touched by the non-Jew. Not only can you consume it, you cannot even benefit from it. So you can't even sell it and use that proceeds for something else, because that would constitute a benefit. Now, again, there's a lot of details here, but he tells us something really interesting. Another example of the severity that our sages extended to this subject. When you have wine that was used for idolatry, that wine is more prohibited than any other thing in the whole Torah. We have a lot of things that are prohibited. A lot of non-kosher meat or even kosher meat, but that wasn't processed properly. There are a lot of things that are prohibited. And those things that are prohibited in the Torah, almost invariably, there's some sort of remedy. So, for example, you have milk and meat, just for the sake of the concept. Milk and meat, prohibited. We don't mix the milk and meat. What happens if you have a massive pot full of your meat stew and a little drop of milk falls into that stew? That's now a prohibited mixture. What do you do with the whole stew? Massive stew. Do you have to discard the entire stew because of that one drop of milk? The answer is no. And the general rule is when something permitted becomes intermingled with something prohibited, if the prohibited part is indistinguishable, and it's not significant, 
there are ways to remedy the situation. So one example, again, the, the details here are myriad, but just the principles here. Suppose you have a, a forbidden mixture and you don't know where the prohibited parts are and where the permitted parts are. So again, one idea is we say that if it's just one small drop, the drop is rendered as if it's insignificant and the entire stew would be permitted. But even if it won't be permitted, there are schemes in which you could remedy the situation. So suppose you know that 90, you know, 5% of a mixture is permitted and that other 5% is prohibited and you're not allowed to benefit from it at all. There is a scheme in which you can sell the entire, the entire set of things and sell it for the price of 95%. Meaning you're saying, I don't know what that 5% is, the five prohibited percent, but I'm selling you 95% because I know that 95% is permitted. That is a scheme in the Talmud that would allow like a workaround for when there's a intermingling, there's a mixture of permitted and non-permitted. Now, of course, this is all provided that you know that you're selling it to a non-Jew who's allowed to benefit from it, but you don't have a concern that that non-Jew will go and sell it to a Jew. That's an example of a remedy for these kinds of situations, of scenarios. But with wine used for idolatry, there is no way to remedy it. One drop, you have a vat the size of a whole room. And one drop of idolatrous wine drops in, the entire vat must be discarded. You can't even sell it at all. That's the degree of stringency that was extended to this subject. In other areas, other prohibited things, the mixture, there are conditions. You have to have, for example, the prohibited items have to contribute towards the taste. They have to constitute a substantive amount in order to render the entirety of the thing prohibited. When it comes to wine used for libations and other items of idolatry, even a tiny little drop that's so insignificant and doesn't contribute towards the taste, that would invalidate everything that it dropped into. Now, the Sefer Chinuch, he has a nice little finish over here. He says that he's encouraging the reader of the book to study this subject intently because there's many places in the Talmud where this subject arises. And that's why I, unlike, you know, typically I try to give a little survey of the mitzvah, says the Sefer HaChinuch, but I spoke more and more about the various different stringencies because I want to give you more of a background on this critical subject. And then he tells us that if there is wine that was used for libations, not only can't you benefit directly from that wine, you cannot even benefit indirectly from that wine. So for example, suppose you see a job available that needs someone to break down the barrels of wine. 
You have empty barrels of wine. And they want to take apart that wood. So the sages tell us, because those barrels once bore the wine from libations, you cannot even benefit in this tangential way, in this indirect way of being hired in this industry in any way, in any capacity, even to break the barrels of the wine would be prohibited. And the Sefer Chinuch ends, you know, why is it so stringent? Why are there so many rabbinic extensions to this mitzvah? And the reason he tells us is that we must uproot idolatry in all its forms, in all its capacities. We have to get rid of it from our minds. And we shouldn't be desirous of idolatry in any way. And we shouldn't be hired in this industry in any capacity. And then he tells us, if you have wine in your house, and there's a Gentile who's there, you have to make sure that the wine is double sealed. Or you have to make sure that there is someone walking in and out, monitoring the situation. That would be a way to ensure that the wine would still be kosher, even though it is exposed to the Gentile. Now, if you go to the kosher wine at your local grocery shop, you'll see something really interesting. You'll see that many of the kosher wines have a description on the back of it that says mevushal or mevushal, which means that it was cooked. And the reason why so many Jewish wines are cooked, like they're, they're pasteurized, is because the Talmud tells us that all these stringencies do not apply when the wine has been cooked. So if you have pasteurized wine, cooked wine, mevushal wine, in the words of the Talmud, and the Gentile touches it, it is not prohibited. You know, just, you guys know me, I'm not uh, much of a drinker. But just this past week, there was, you know, a, a winemaker from Israel. And he came, was doing like a whole wine tour in uh, in Houston. And I happened to have gone to HEB, which is, of course, the big grocery chain here in Texas. And he tried to get me to buy some of his fancy wine. And he was explaining to me, this wine's like this, and this wine's like that. And I said, listen, you know, I'm, I don't really enjoy wine. He says, no, you're doing it wrong. You're waiting until you make Kiddush on an empty stomach. It's not you have to do. You got to do it like this. You got to do it like that. But he, he persuaded me. He persuaded me to buy what he called an entry-level wine. I thought it was kind of pricey. I don't know. Maybe the, the wine aficionados out there will say, that's not expensive. But $25 for a bottle of wine, that's pretty expensive, right? I don't know. Maybe that's cheap. But I did buy a wine just this week. $25. I said, you know what? You persuaded me. You came all the way from Israel, from your winery in Israel. I'm going to buy it. And this guy was like the winemaker. He was, um, I guess, the proprietor. So his name is signed in the back. I said, okay, let's do it. He persuaded me. But if you look at kosher wines, many, many of them will have in the back. They'll say, Mevushal, it was cooked. And that, the Talmud says, that would not 
be subject to all these stringencies. Once it's hooked, the Gentile touches it, it is not prohibited. Now, in the uh, Art Scroll version of the Sefer Chinuch, in the back, they have a whole essay about this subject. And they offer three different reasons from the medieval sages as to why cooked wine does not have these stringencies. So first they bring the Rambam. The Rambam tells us that in the temple, in our temple, cooked wine was not usable. And it was not used in the idolatrous practices either. And therefore there is no concern with pasteurized wine that the Gentile intended it for libation. And therefore it's okay. That's the first reason. The second reason they tell us is that when the rabbis make a decree, you cannot, on your own, extend that decree. And they made a decree only with uncooked wine. And therefore, with cooked wine, those stringencies do not apply. That came courtesy of the Rosh, one of the great medieval sages. And finally, the Rashpa says that when you pasteurize the wine, and the wine Kanyashenti will confirm this, I'm sure. When you pasteurize the wine, it alters the flavor of the wine to the degree that it can be reclassified not as wine, but as cooked wine. It's a different entity. It's a different noun. It's a different kind of beverage, of drink. And for this, there was never the stringencies featured in the words of our sages. But that's another important point to know about this whole mitzvah, that the entire kosher wine industry is really oriented around this, and that's why there is such an emphasis to pasteurize the wine to avoid all of these stringencies that we mentioned. But again, it's a really interesting and practical mitzvah, Wine that was used for, or that we suspect in any way, was used for idolatrous libations is prohibited. Mitzvah number 111, idolatrous wine, the last mitzvah that we're going to cover in the book of Exodus. And please, God, we will continue with the book of Leviticus. Two down, three to go.